Hello and welcome to Bird of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 46, The Five Cosmo Birds. Welcome back to the show. Now, I am going to tell you something about birds that will not come as a surprise. Birds can fly. I know, this is like the most basic observation that can be made about our avian friends. But how do birds fly? Well, alright, we went from the most basic observation to the most complicated question very quickly there. This is a subject for another time and not the focus of today's episode. How do birds fly? Don't worry about it. All you need to know is that they do. And as a consequence of their flighted nature, birds have been able to spread to pretty much every corner of the globe. We find birds in arctic wastelands, in the middle of the ocean, in deserts, over mountains, and on pretty much every isolated scrap of land that has pushed its nose above the waves. Birds are almost unlimited in where they can get to, because for them there are no barriers. There is no physical obstacle that can't be overcome by simply opening their wings and fluttering away. Granted, there are some locations that take a bit of specialization to get to, but given hundreds of millions of years of evolution, birds have more or less solved all those problems. I mean, the answer of how do we survive in Antarctica was the penguin, which is really stretching the concept of what a bird is, but they still count. The point is, you can't go anywhere in this world without tripping over one bird or another. But, having made this observation, it does raise an intriguing question. If birds can get anywhere on Earth, why don't we find species that have a global range? If birds can fly anywhere in the world, why have so few totally conquered the world? No doubt there are a lot of limiting factors, you know, appropriate environment, vast distances, different predators and food sources, etc. But still, even accounting for all those factors, we would expect there to be a couple of generalist species that had cracked the code and made it to every continent in one capacity or another. Well, indeed, there are a few who have done that, but let me tell you, it is an exclusive club. In fact, there are only five birds that we can consider to have a global, or if we want to be fancy, a cosmopolitan range. And today we are going to meet them all, and also delve a little into biogeographic realms, and also discuss why membership to the Cosmo Club is so tightly controlled. So strap on in, because today we are talking about Cosmo Birds. Bird of the week. So, before we delve too deep into this subject, we better note a couple of caveats. First, when we say a bird is present on every continent, we mean it has a permanent population that breeds there. Second, we should also acknowledge that there is no species of bird that meets this definition for every continent. You know, Throwing Antarctica into the mix really makes things difficult because the level of specialization you need to survive down there in the frigid blizzards and month-long darkness, you know, it kind of makes you 
ill-equipped to live anywhere else. Exhibit A, the penguin. Great at living on ice, but yeah, 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 not so much anywhere else. There are exceptions. Next, we are also excluding oceanic birds. They don't count. We are only talking about land-based birds. And finally, we are going to exclude any bird that has been introduced by people. Yes, you can find pigeons, chickens, and sparrows on all the continents, but we put them there so it doesn't really count. We're only interested in the birds that did it themselves. So, once we have gone through those technicalities, we are looking for land-based birds that are found breeding on every continent, except Antarctica. That leaves us with just five birds. Five birds who have conquered the world, who can be found on every continent across this globe. But who are they? Well, I'm going to be a bit of a tease and hold off on meeting them just yet, because first, we need to learn about biogeographic realms. Oh, wait a second, I think that term deserves a bit more grandeur. Biogeographic realms. So what is a biogeographic realm? What physical phenomenon could evoke such reverb in a podcast? Well, to be fair, the word is pretty self-explanatory. They are geographic realms that have distinct fauna and flora. In one sense, they stand as evidence for the theory of plate tectonics, because it is a consequence of how the continents drift about the Earth for billions of years that results in the unique biomes that has arisen on each one as they spent time in isolation before crashing back together again. In the time they were separate, it gave plants and animals a chance to evolve in their own special ways. And so, the Earth's biogeographic realms more or less follow the lines of traditional continents. Yep, kinda. Let's give them a quick rundown. Traditionally, we say the Earth has seven or eight regions, depending on how you count. The first and the biggest is the Palearctic. This is all of Europe, all of Northern Asia, including most of China and Japan, as well as the northern portion of Africa. The next region is the Afrotropic, or as it is sometimes more colloquially referred to, Sub-Saharan Africa. And unlike the concept of continents, which all have really fuzzy edges, biogeographic realms, yeah, yeah, we also honestly have fuzzy edges, but there is usually a major geographic formation that separates one from another. In this case, the Sahara Desert separates the biorealms of the Palearctic and the Afrotropic. It's a land feature that is more or less impassable by any plant or animal, and so what we tend to see is that life that exists on opposite sides of this barrier tends to be very different. So that's the Palearctic, Europe, Northern Asia, the Afrotropic, you know, tropical regions of Africa, The next one are the tropical regions of Asia, and here we find the Indo-Malayan realm. So in this case, India spent a long time being isolated from the rest of Asia before it zipped up and ran headlong into the rest of the land to create the Himalayan mountains. As a result, today the plants and animals that called India home while it was an island continue to be unique from the other creatures that call Asia home. Today, those mighty mountains continue to act as a barrier, preventing the animals of India mixing with those in China. 
So, you know, sometimes geopolitics and biogeography, you know, they line up neatly. Our next region is Australasia. This includes Australia, New Zealand, and Papua New Guinea. Like India, Australia spent a long time in isolation, and it's the reason why in Australia and New Guinea you find marsupials, but if you skip across a couple of islands into Indonesia, you'll be in the Indo-Malay region and you'll start finding tigers and orangutans. Even though physically there isn't a lot of distance between the islands, temporally they have been separated by millennia. Our next two regions are in the Americas, and in the north we have the Neo-Arctic, and in the south we have the Neotropic. Again, although these two continents are linked by the Isthmus of Panama, this is a relatively recent addition, geographically speaking, and so, until quite recently, both these regions were really doing their own thing. Now, we won't really be going near the last two regions, but for completeness, they are the Antarctic and Oceania which represents the islands of the Pacific, which are unique in the sense that they are a melting pot that have been seeded from pretty much every other region. Now, this is obviously a rapid-fire overview of the subject, because, you know, let's be honest, this isn't a podcast about geography, biology, or ecology. I'll drop a link in the description to a video that does a much better job of explaining biogeographic realms than I could. But the takeaway point is that what we tend to find when we look at birds is that certain species, hell, even whole families, tend to be confined to their own biogeographic realm. Because that's the place where they first evolved. Now, of course, there are always exceptions. You will recall, for example, from our recent wren episode, that almost all the true wrens live in either North or South America. But there is one species that has made the jump to Europe. But then, if we look at a family like the birds of paradise or the cockatoos, we would see that they are found only in Australasia. Meanwhile, hummingbirds are only found in the Americas, vultures are only found in Africa and Asia, whereas New World vultures are only found in the Americas. And then there are hornbills that are only found in the Afrotropics and Indomalaya. There are many birds that may have a range over one or two regions, but there are almost none that have managed to get a foothold in all of them. Almost none. Almost. And so now maybe it's the time to meet the five birds, a mere five out of 10,000 that have managed to colonize the world. Our first bird is the peregrine falcon. Maybe one of the most famous birds and more than worthy of its own episode. Renowned the world over for being not only the fastest bird in the sky, but the fastest animal alive today. When a peregrine falcon goes into their death dive or stoop, they can reach speeds of well over 300 kilometers per hour. That's over 200 miles. Now I know what you're thinking. There isn't anything overly impressive about that. After all, all they're doing is falling towards the earth. But consider this. If you jumped out of a plane and tried to race the falcon, you'd only hit an average speed of about 200 kilometers an hour. Even if you did everything you could to streamline your fall, you'd still top out at under 300, and you've got the weight advantage as well. The falcon would zip past you like you were standing still. Now, the physics of how exactly the peregrine can achieve these high speeds is pretty impressive, but that's not the reason why we're talking about them today. We'll save that for the special falcon episode. 
What is curious, though, is that there are plenty of falcons, but the peregrine is the only one that has truly conquered the world. You can find them in the tundra of Siberia, the savannah of Africa, in New York City, on the prairies, in the mountains, somewhere on every continent the world over. And in part, it is their adaptability that has made the peregrine falcon so successful. They can adapt to live in many different environments, including human-built ones. The world over, many peregrine falcons have set up shop high in our city skylines, where they make their homes on concrete ledges and feed on a ready supply of pigeons. Their diet is another thing that has made it easy for them to spread, because while they are a highly specialised hunter, they aren't too picky about their prey. Peregrine falcons are aerial hunters and take their prey on the wing and primarily target other birds. The ones we most commonly see them take are pigeons, but that's because the ones we tend to observe most are the ones that live in cities, and there are a lot of pigeons in cities. But a peregrine falcon will happily take most medium-sized birds, so as long as there are other birds about, they tend to be well-fed, and as we said, it's hard to go anywhere without seeing a bird. Another interesting thing about this falcon, and some of the other birds we will meet, is that they aren't strictly migratory or non-migratory, or in fact for that matter, nomadic. As we saw in our migration episode, go back and listen if you haven't already, many birds are obligate migrants, you know, regardless of how a season is going, or how harsh a winter is, or if there's food or not, they will migrate, whether they need to or not. Now the peregrine falcon is interesting in one sense, because some falcons will be year-round residents of their home, but others that live and breed in more arctic environs will migrate during the winter, and yet others can be a little nomadic, moving around to where the conditions are best. Indeed, their name, peregrine falcon, means the wandering falcon. So there are two things going on. On the one hand, the falcon has a tendency to travel around, creating the opportunity for it to spread to new lands. And it also has a tendency to be adaptable. It can migrate if it needs, or it can settle in for the long haul if it finds a nice home. Taken together, this has helped the falcon to become one of the most widely spread birds in the world, because it has allowed it to take advantage of numerous conditions, regardless of how good they are year-round. So that's the peregrine falcon. Our next bird is another bird of prey, the osprey. Although these guys are more specialised than the falcon and are reliant on waterways to catch their dinner. Much like our friend the falcon, the osprey is successful because it can tolerate a wide variety of habitats. And again, like our falcon, different populations around the world have adapted to be either migratory or all-year residents, depending on the conditions they find. As long as there is a body of water nearby and a ready supply of fish, they're good to go. They can set up breeding sites anywhere from frozen Alaska to tropical Queensland in Australia and everywhere in between. Yeah, although they don't really do deserts. Yeah, I mean, um, the, the lack of water should really give that one away. But at the end of the day, an osprey is just a type of eagle, right? What makes them special? Why are they able to take on the world when the rest of their family can't? Well... Hang on to your tail feathers here, because as it turns out, the osprey is not a typical eagle. In fact, they're so different that they're actually placed in their own family, or by themselves. 
That's right, if you were to look at all the raptors of the world, every species would be in a single family, and heaven help me, I'm going to try to say the Latin name, Asapritidae. Just say it with confidence. Every single species is in that one family, except for the osprey, that is out there by itself doing its own thing. Well, you know, technically the secretary bird is in a family by itself too, but we don't need to get into that one now. Osprey diverged from the rest of the raptors millions of years ago to become specialist fish hunters, and it is this talent that has helped them take over the world. They have a unique ability among the raptors to plunge dive for their food. Other eagles that fish will skim along the surface of the water and pluck a fish without stopping. Not the osprey, the osprey dives right on into that water. And even more remarkable, they can take off again from the surface of the water, carrying a fish that could weigh as much as themselves. Their wings are especially evolved to provide a maximum lift from a standstill to get them airborne from a water start. Because of this unique hunting technique, the osprey has little competition for resources, and in part, this is the secret to their success, and one of the reasons why they have taken over the world, whilst every other eagle has failed. Moving on to our next bird, and we meet the glossy ibis. Now, in Australia, the poor old Australian white ibis is sometimes known as the bin chicken, and is a much maligned and poorly understood bird. One day, I will do a whole episode on the ibis and try to rehabilitate their reputation, but that's a bird for another week. Today, we're talking about their slightly more fancy cousin, the glossy ibis. Yeah, in some ways, the glossy ibis is like the dark alter ego of the white ibis we are more familiar with. Trade in the white plumes for black, and you've more or less got this ibis. You know, you just need to add a splash of subtle green, blue, and orange iridescence on their wings and back. They are, of course, a type of waterfowl with a long sickle-shaped beak. Yeah, until more recently, the glossy ibis was confined to the old world. That's where it evolved, and it has populations primarily centred in Africa and Australia. But they can also be found in isolated pockets in India, other parts of Asia, and a few locations in Europe. But until the 1800s, they weren't to be found in the Americas. And no one is quite sure how they got over there. But one of the tricks that no doubt helped them to spread to the Americas, and indeed the rest of the world, is again, their nomadic and semi-migratory behaviour. After breeding, the ibis will disperse itself. Most birds that live in Europe and India will migrate to regions of Africa, but others will stick around in the western corner of India and a southern tip of Spain. If there's a nice marshy land for them to wait about in, they're quite content to settle in. But at other times, they will go wandering, and no doubt it was a few wandering birds about 200 years ago that led them to naturally spread to the Americas. They were first sighted in Florida back in 1832, and they have never looked back since. From our human perspective, this is a little different to what we're used to. Usually, it's we people that are introducing strange animals to new places, but sometimes the birds can naturally disperse themselves and make a living in a new location. And that's exactly what our next bird accomplished, and in this case, its spread was really well documented. So our fourth cosmopolitan bird, not Antarctica, is a distant relative of the ibis, the cattle 
Egret. Now, I don't know about you, but when I started pondering what the five birds that conquered the world would be, I wasn't thinking ibis and egret, but here we are. The cattle egret is a type of heron. What's the difference between an egret and a heron, I hear you say? Well, you know, there, there isn't really a difference, but if it helps, egret is to heron as cat is to feline. They're a sort of subset of a heron. Kind of oversimplified, but you know, that's the gist. Don't worry about it. As the name would suggest, the cattle egret does traditionally like to hang out alongside livestock and other cattle. So, you know, that part of the name is accurate. But for our purposes, the cattle egret is one of the most interesting cosmopolitan birds because we have well-documented evidence of their spread. Out of every bird in the world, even our other superstars on the list, the cattle egret has undergone not only the most widespread natural expansion, but also the most rapid. So if we rewind the clock a couple of hundred years and take a look at our cattle egret, we will find that their original range was around Spain and Portugal, the tropical and subtropical parts of Africa, and the humid tropical and subtropical parts of Asia. So already they had a nice suave of the old world carved out for themselves. But then in 1877, a few intrepid egrets crossed the Atlantic Ocean, flying clean across the sea from Africa to land on the coast of Guyana. From there, they slowly spread through South America. And by the 1960s, they had taken over most of the southern continent. Oh, but they didn't stop in the south. They began eyeing off the north. They were first sighted in North America in the 1940s. Although it was originally thought they were escapees from somewhere else, they probably flew up through the Caribbean Sea. By the 1950s, though, they were nice and settled in Florida, had started breeding, and they kept on spreading from there. They crept on up the coast, hitting Canada during the 1960s. And then meanwhile, on the other side of the world, the cattle egret first reached Australia in the 1940s. They flew on over from Indonesia, and they started in the north of the continent near Cape York and spread down from there. And did the Tasman Sea stand in their way? No, it did not. They reached New Zealand about 20 years later. So now they have a good established population, more or less wherever the conditions suit them. In no small part, their success comes down to their relationship with us people and our domesticated animals. The cattle egret long ago adapted a special relationship with large grazing animals. They like to forage alongside the bigger animals, snapping up any insects that get disturbed. Now, this seems to be a good strategy for them, and some studies have shown that they're up to three times more successful at catching food when they're with livestock than when they're by themselves. And so, as we people have favoured livestock animals and repurposed the land for their raising, we have, at the same time, spread egret habitat around the world. We made it easy for them to find new homes in land that had otherwise been cleared of the original native fauna. So while we didn't deliberately introduce the egret, and while the egret naturally found its way to all these places by itself, it is in no small part thanks to us and how we reshape the world. In this sense, we can consider three other cosmopolitan birds that are similar. The house sparrow, the rock dove, and the starling are three super little cosmopolitan birds that have only managed to spread around the world because they do really well living alongside people. They have adapted well to urban environments and have moved in wherever we go. The cattle egret 
in one sense, is the country version of these urban cosmos. It's just that we accidentally, sometimes deliberately, brought these birds along ourselves. The cattle egret did it all by itself. Okay, so we've had the egret, the ibis, the osprey, and the falcon. Who could the last bird be? Well, we're going back to the birds of prey, and it is the barn owl. Now, my truly intrepid listeners will no doubt recall that we took a close look at the barn owl in episode 31 on owls. Who gives a hoot? Go back and listen to that one if you haven't already. So I will try not to repeat myself here. But just a quick primer. Listeners may recall that there are two distinct lineages of owls. The true owls and the barn owls. But that's not to say that barn owls are fake owls. They're true owls too, they're just not inverted comma true owls. Wait, did that make sense? Let me say that another way. Barn owls are owls. They are just atypical when it comes to the owl family. They have distinct features that other owls lack. For example, they have instantly recognisable heart-shaped faces. Barn owls also never have ear tufts. And barn owls don't hoot. They tend to make more of a screeching noise. And just like our cattle egret, barn owls have a preference for living near people. They like to nest in disused human sites, like barns, yeah, hence hence the name, but also lofts, church steeples, and other ruins. No doubt this tendency has helped them to settle lands the world over, but unlike the cattle egret, the barn owl has been long established all over the world. We don't have a record of their recent spread. They've been all over the place. They hit every continent and can be found in a variety of habitats. But here we do begin to run into something interesting, and is one of the other reasons why we don't find a lot of truly cosmopolitan birds. You see, there is currently some disagreement between ornithologists as to if there is one species of barn owl, or if there is three. Disagreement! Who would have thought that the world of birds was so rife with controversy? But it seems we can't talk about any bird without raising the ire of some researcher somewhere. In the case of the barn owl, it is generally agreed that there are at least three major lineages. There is the western barn owl that lives in Africa, Europe, and Asia. There is the eastern barn owl that lives in Asia and Australia. And there is the American barn owl that lives in, yep, America, funnily enough. So what we are seeing here is an evolutionary process that we have mentioned a few times before. Speciation. Now this is the process where a single species will evolve into several new forms, each one becoming slightly different from its parent group until it is unrecognisable and basically its own thing. Now this can happen for a few reasons. You may recall Darwin's famous finches, not really finches, from the Galapagos Islands. They all started out as a single species, but individuals started specialising in different ecological niches until they all evolved into a wide array of different species. And the same thing happened on the Hawaiian Islands with the honeycreepers. You know, those ones are finches, those ones. Now, the other way that new species can arise is through geographic isolation. After all, if individual members of a population can't interbreed with each other, over time, differences will build up. They will drift apart, genetically speaking, and become different species. And this is how Birds that get marooned on isolated islands will eventually evolve to be different species from the original bird that landed there. 
Well, the same thing is also happening with our barn owls. Because, I don't know about you, but I don't think there is too much interbreeding going on between the barn owls of Canada and the barn owls of Australia. That the Pacific Ocean is in the way. Given enough time, those populations will become so different, genetically speaking, as to become two different species. And that process is already happening, and the only thing left now is the scientists arguing about whether they're different or still the same. It's actually really hard to tell. You know, you should go back and listen to our episode on how many birds are there. It's stupidly complicated. But that's all beside the point. For the moment, the barn owl is broadly considered to be a single species. But one day they won't. And so we can think about any other species of bird that has ever similarly achieved a global distribution. Their claim to world domination will always be short-lived. Sooner or later, evolution is going to step in, change their genes and turn the bird into something different to what it was. Ravens, for example, have a global distribution as a family, but there is no single species that spans the globe. At one point, though, every member of the raven family evolved from a common ancestor. Maybe at one point that ancestor had a foothold in every continent before evolution did its thing. So, in part, our answer to the question of why are there so few birds that have a global range is not so much because the birds can't do it, but because, given enough time, evolution will undo their efforts, and they will have to start all over again. It just so happens, at the time we live, there are five birds who have done it recently enough that evolution hasn't had time to alter them. From the cattle egret, where we literally watched them spread across the world over the last hundred years, to the barn owl, who may be on the verge of losing its cosmos status to the slow creep of evolutionary forces. But before we close today, we can maybe also summarise a couple of the main attributes that, at least in our modern age, have assisted these birds in their expansion. One, it really does help when you get along with humans. Peregrine falcons, cattle egrets, and barn owls are all able to easily adapt to live near people and, in fact, do surprisingly well in close proximity to us. And I don't know if you've noticed, but as far as cosmopolitan animals go, we people are pretty much everywhere. We've also got Antarctica covered. Go us! Although, maybe it doesn't count because we don't breed down there. Yet. Number two, most of these birds aren't locked into being purely migratory or purely sedentary. They're adaptable. They migrate if they have to. They stay put when they want to. And they're happy being a bit of a nomad, drifting to wherever conditions are favourable. This gives them a tendency to wander and find new lands. And so, as a consequence, they have spread around the world more readily. Also worth noting, none of them are small birds. They're all robust, strong, medium to large birds that are capable of covering long distances and over water when need be. These are the tools and tendencies that help a bird to spread. So there are a few boxes that need to be ticked. You've got to be strong. You've got to be willing to go where the wind takes you. You've got to get on well with people and you've got to do it all before evolution changes you into something different. And at this point in time, there are only five birds that tick every box. The peregrine falcon, the osprey, the glossy ibis, the cattle egret, and the barn owl. Those are the Cosmo birds, the five members of the exclusive club. So now you know. At any rate, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and have come away with a couple of fun facts. 
Now, I hope you'll stick around, because next time we will be looking at what is possibly the polar opposite of a cosmopolitan bird. We're going to meet one of the most specialised and isolated birds in the world. Uh, we're talking about the national bird of New Zealand. That's right, it's the kiwi. And I know you won't want to miss that one. Now, if you want some more bird action, I've got some good news. Our bonus podcast called What's Up With That Bird's Name has just come out. And this week, it is all about the osprey. Where the heck does that name come from? And what does it mean? Well, for the low, low price of just $2 a month, you can find out all about it. All you need to do is swing on over to Patreon forward slash bird of the week or one word link in the description to find out more. And if you're feeling especially generous and want to make a bigger contribution, then you too can get a special thank you from me in the show. Just like my good friends, Jewel Chalker, Jed Little, Debbie Hode, R. Fuller, and Richard Clark, the Minty Fresh. And as always, if you'd like to receive a bird in your inbox each week, then drop me a line at weekly.bird at outlook.com, and I'll add you to the mailing list where you will get a new bird lovingly delivered to you for free each and every week. I mean, hey, who doesn't want more birds in the rim box? At any rate, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in again next time. Until then, this has been Bird of the Week. Now, as mentioned, the osprey is alone within its family, Pendonier, and so by definition, Pan-Dion-Idae. Pan-Dion-Idae.